0: Hey, NASA Edge, I wanted to send you a message to congratulate you guys on your 200th episode. What a major accomplishment. But in order to make this message a really heartfelt, thoughtful message, I need to bring in your former co-host and my wife.
1: Hi, congratulations on 200
2: episodes. I am so excited to say that I was a part of your team bringing the inside and outside look at all things NASA to the world. We have to thank you bringing us together and now we have three future nasa edge co-hosts that are coming your way congratulations
0: and wishing you guys all the most success moving forward and see you guys soon
3: Welcome to the 200th episode of NASA EDGE, where we're again bringing you an inside and outside look at all things NASA. 200 episodes, Franklin. Pretty impressive. I'm, I'm kind of feeling the 200 episodes right now, but uh, pretty exciting, I got to admit.
4: Yeah, it, it really is. And uh, when we talk about 200 episodes, uh, we'll, we'll kind of expound upon that uh, later on in the show. Uh, but right now, we're gonna to get to the topic of today, and that is a, a lunar robotic arm and in in-space assembly technology.
1: That's yes, right, Franklin. This is all part of the On-Orbit Service Assembly and Manufacturing Initiative, or OSAM, where we're gonna be developing a lot of technologies within NASA outside NASA, other government agencies, and the commercial sector, where these technologies will be used to assemble persistent platforms in space on the lunar surface and eventually on Mars.
3: Chris, I got a chance to talk with Tom Jones, who's the principal investigator with some of this technology in his lab, where he works with those cool tools. Let's check it out. So Tom, essentially you work with a really big crane. So tell me, what exactly is the LSMS?
0: So the LSMS is a lightweight, long-reach manipulator that's designed primarily, or sized primarily, for payload offloading. But it also provides a lot of additional functionality through the use of quick
3: change and effector tools. How do you determine these uh, add-ons that you create for the manipulator?
0: So it's, it's based on what the requirements are for the mission, obviously. So for building out an outpost, we're looking at uh, functions like inspection, site surveying, we're also looking at operations that will allow us to maneuver the regolith to use that for things like radiation protection. Currently, we're looking at something for 3D printing on the surface where we'd actually reuse the regolith with a binder and we could possibly actually build structures uh, using that device.
3: That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty impressive. Now, it sounds like if you're talking lunar outposts, essentially, you're going to be doing a lot of support for the Artemis mission. How does LSMS? play into that mission?
0: Right, so for Artemis, we're trying to build up a sustained presence on the moon as we look to that and then forward to Mars. And so the LSMS allows us to do those payload operations, which are one of the primary focuses, both getting things off of the lander and then doing operations on the surface. But then these additional functions that we can provide really allow us to provide a very mass efficient device. So the functions that we have, we can allow them to build berms, do digging operations, we can deploy systems on the surface, so it really gives us a lot of functionality and a lot of bang for the buck.
3: So how do you test something like the LSMS here on Earth when it's going to the moon? I mean, we haven't been there with this kind of thing for quite some time.
0: Right, and so one of the approaches that we're looking at is to build a subscale version of the LSMS that we would fly on one of the earlier CLIPS missions, which is a commercial lunar payload services mission, and we would have that demonstrate some of the flight software, flight electronics, and the functionality of that device on the lunar surface. And it would also add additional functionality for our commercial partners so that they can provide additional operations for the payloads that they'll be carrying in the future.
3: That actually seems to be really exciting. If I were a commercial company going to the moon, it seems like I could really use one of these tools.
0: Right, and so we're, we're hoping we can get them on some of those first flights. It helps us prove out our technology as we go towards building a human lander scale version of it. But then we can provide them with that smaller version, so they can provide additional functionality to their customers as they continue to fly missions out there.
3: What are some of the advantages or best features of the LSMS?
0: Yeah, so the LSMS is uh, somewhat different from a regular robotic manipulator in that we can lift very large payloads um, versus the system mass because the the whole design is based around structural efficiency. And it also allows us to use very little power for this device. It only has three motors, and they're co-located at the base. But because of the design, we have mechanical advantage at each of the joints. And so it doesn't use as much torque in the motor. The motor can run on less power. One of the other advantages is that we can package this uh, very compactly for launch. It sits in a vertical configuration. Um, with a small footprint, but then once we get there, we can deploy it into a, a long-reach manipulator uh, to allow us to do all the operations.
3: Well, have you talked to anybody about creating your own, like, Tom the Builder uh, <laughs> for a kid's show that we can uh, air on the moon maybe in the future?
0: Uh, we haven't done that yet, no, but um, we've we've actually looked at, at building versions of this out of uh, Lego to involve some STEM, you know. Getting, the, getting universities and uh, high schools involved as well.
3: It's also uh, professional uh, development for potential uh, team members in the future. That's
0: exactly right. We want to inspire those future engineers.
3: That was a great interview.
4: Uh, I remember when we shot that and uh, just to see the, the scale and scope of that, that lunar robotic arm uh, was amazing and, and I look forward to see how this technology is going to evolve and how it's going to be used on the lunar surface.
1: Franklin, this, this asset is extremely important to, the, to NASA because if we want to offload payloads onto that lunar surface, we're going to need a pretty large arm, uh, and not only on the lunar surface, but when we eventually get to Mars. In fact, it's so important. Uh, we actually had remember, the Vice President uh, visit NASA Langley not too long ago with the NASA Administrator, and he actually got to see the arm in action, which, which was pretty cool.
3: That's great, Chris. And the main thing is that not only are we doing things on the lunar surface, but we're doing in-space assembly as well. I had a chance to sit down with Bill Doggett in the same lab and look at what he's doing to provide platforms in space for us to innovate even further. Let's check it out. Bill in-space assembly seems pretty straightforward from my perspective, but I'm sure for you it's very specific. So tell me for you, what is in-space assembly? So the way we
2: currently do things is we package everything on one rocket. Exquisite detail takes a lot of engineering to launch that system on, to, on orbit. And then it pops out like a big jack-in-the-box and it operates. We have no interaction with it. What well, in-space Assembly allows a new paradigm that we call a persistent platform, and that allows for a very small capability to be launched very quickly, and then you can grow that capability and multiple people now can participate at different stages and add experiments different kind of experiments on that platform that maybe only last a few weeks or a few
3: months, but then the next guy comes up and runs his experiment. And so by platform, you literally mean a physical structure in space that instruments can be mounted on? Absolutely. A structure in space that solar arrays deploy from, so you get your power.
2: You can scale that up. You can add additional solar arrays as the needs require, very much like renting space. You know, you can either rent a small room or you can rent a big room. On the platform, you can rent a small area with a little power, or you can rent a a very large room with a lot of
3: power. And it seems like that would be very advantageous for not just NASA, but commercial partners as well.
2: Absolutely. Commercial and universities. Now we have an opportunity to get students involved in very small projects because we have these routine launches that are going to visit the platform. And so you have an opportunity for rideshare for, for students and universities,
3: commercial, everybody to participate. How difficult is it to build these platforms? They look very simple, but they must have a lot of integrity and strength.
2: So the the platform itself is very, very simple to to construct. You need a a thread, so you need a backbone of very reliable systems that are usually multiple redundant. For example, the station keeping. You don't want the system to start spinning uncontrollably. But once you have that backbone capability, the the individual instruments are very simple to add. And, And in fact, we're thinking about things very similar to Velcro, where you can just stick experiments wherever you want.
3: That's gotta be exciting for not only engineers, but scientists as well as they uh, plan different instruments.
2: Absolutely, and a a very unique capability is now because we have these routine visits to the spacecraft or to the persistent platform and back, you can bring these experiments back to investigate them when something goes wrong. But I think the, the most important thing is now we have access to a variety of people for very low cost experiments, so anybody can try something on space.
3: If you're creating these persistent platforms, they can be very sizable, so how do you get these sizable platforms into space efficiently?
2: That's one of the great advantages of in-space assembly. Now we can send up small chunks in a variety of launch vehicles, we can also send up components that are stacked like sheets of plywood very compactly and then spread them out where we need them, or you can send up a a cylinder that is full of material or a long spool that then you can feed into a 3D printer and use advanced technology to to make whatever you want and that can be a capability on orbit
3: that you can make things you're not even thinking about now. It seems like this is a very versatile platform. How is it gonna support the Artemis program? So in terms of the Artemis mission,
2: it will allow us to start with a small capability, for example, at gateway, and also a small capability on the moon, and then grow that capability over time by adding additional rooms to the gateway or additional resources, additional power to the gateway system. And likewise, we can do the same thing on the moon. We can start out with a small outpost capability and grow that capability, add solar arrays, build larger berms, build covers for the habitats. Uh, build places for for people to interact and and have a good time. You know, ultimately (laughs) we want to have a good time as as we're doing this.
3: That's right, I know that's my goal. Exactly. I'm just excited to hear that it's also true in the engineering community. Absolutely,
2: (laughs) absolutely. You know, we want to have fun and we want people to have fun so that more people go and they expand the capabilities and not only US, but you know, the entire world. We want everybody to join us as we go and explore outer space.
3: Really cool, really flexible technology. And the good news is that we're already seeing some results. They're moving forward, getting approval, getting added to actual missions. Things are going well for the folks with the persistent platform and the LSMS. Good stuff for sure. But I got to admit, I'm a little distracted guys because it's our 200th and I don't know. What do you guys think?
1: I think the last time I saw you wearing that shirt, we were on Mars. That's right. Is that true?
4: Yep. (laughs) You know what, I'll go all the way back to our our first uh, show when I was doing interviews in Virginia Beach. Uh, And uh, I don't think my my shirt was as flowery as yours, (laughs) but I did have some kind of island flow with it. And I think that was kind of like the theme that we had early on in the uh, NASA EDGE programs.
1: Hey, uh, to celebrate the uh, the 200 uh, episodes of NASA EDGE, so I have four questions that I picked out uh, that I think that would be pretty cool to kind of get your reaction uh, and see uh, what you think. See if you remember all 200 episodes, see, remember see maybe where you were at during certain episodes. Let's, let's see and, and try it out. Sound good?
3: Okay, okay, okay. That sounds fun. Okay, let's roll with it. All
1: right, uh, here is question number one.
3: Hi, Blair, Franklin, Ron, and Ryan. On behalf of NASA's Entry, Descent, and Landing community, I want to congratulate you on your 200th episode. And now, since you've asked us all those compelling questions over the years, we have one for you. Where is the most unusual location where you've filmed footage for a show? Unusual? Um, I'd say atop the super pipe at Winter X Games for me. that's. Not only did we shoot there, but we actually helped a photographer who had forgotten his food. Chris gave him some extra snacks. It was actually a life-saving moment. So a very important moment for NASA EDGE. Well, you know, for me, I
4: think when we were in London during the uh, London Olympics for the Curiosity landing, that is where my wife grew up. It wasn't unusual, but it was a really great experience for the NASA EDGE team, for me especially.
1: Probably the TDRS launch. We were on top of the VAB at night, which was pretty cool. Seeing a rocket launch from about 500 plus feet up in the air, and it seems like it was so clear that night that we seemed like we saw that rocket just reach orbit. I mean, that's how clear it was. Okay, let's go to question number two.
3: Congratulations, NASA Edge, 200th episode. Way to go! and 13 years and counting, lucky number 13, right? My question is, what was the one that was the most challenging behind the scenes, but nobody knew the wiser, the audience did not know? Uh, hmm. Wow, that's a great question. I
4: think I would say it was probably the transit of Venus because the, the length of the show, it spent so many hours and it was, bone chilling cold on top of Mauna Kea like uh, I think we saw it 17 degrees up there that day and the crazy thing about that being in Hawaii at the end of the day we went back down to our hotel that was down at sea level and it was 85 degrees.
1: I have to agree with you Franklin you know 14,000 feet 7 hour 8 hour uh, broadcast Uh, we were there early in the morning all the way to sunset. I mean, that was an extremely long day, but not just the, the event itself, but the multiple times we had to work uh, at altitude to, just to test our equipment and get everything ready for the show.
3: I, I would agree. And being at that altitude actually impaired my judgment because I almost uh, fell off the side of uh, Mauna Kea chasing someone's hat. <laughs> you know, so, so I, I, I didn't have all my That's faculties right. about me at, at the time, but a great show and uh, obviously a, a, a a very, very interesting location.
1: All right, we have two more questions. Uh, Question number three.
3: Yeah. So question for NASA EDGE, have you guys ever arrived at a shoot, you know, traveling a long distance away and not gotten your luggage or your cameras or anything and had to do the shoot uh, uh, with your phones or something like that?
1: Um, Oh, wait a minute. We we, we may not have lost our luggage, but we had an issue with the (laughs) TriCaster when we went to England. (laughs)
3: Yeah, that was like kind of a customs issue more than anything else. Yeah, I and mean, we didn't know we were going to broadcast. I mean, that was really tricky. So uh, the uh, Mars rover might have had a seven minutes of terror as it entered the atmosphere for landing, but we had about 72 hours of terror wondering whether or not we would have a broadcast uh, uh, during the Curiosity landing. Uh, yeah, that was a scary moment for sure.
1: And then Franklin, if you remember the trip, I think it was the trip to, uh, maybe it was the trip to England, where when I had to leave early, so I had to go to the Netherlands and bring the lights, (laughs) which you had in your hotel room the whole time. Wow. And and then the the customs agent asked me, was that in my possession the whole time? And I was honest, I said, no. And they detained me for a while, just to make sure that, uh, (laughs) you know, I I was legit, so. In a
3: rare moment, uh, Chris was gripped with the need for honesty and uh, it, it put
1: him in peril. barrel. <laughs> I thought I wasn't going to make it out of, uh, out of uh, Amsterdam that day. If, you got, if, you got hemmed
3: up. If you're going to get held, back, <laughs> held up or, or, or waylaid, if you will, at least you would have been in the Netherlands. Uh, you know, there are worse places you That's right. get stranded for sure.
1: That's true. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Uh, question number four.
0: Hey, NASA EDGE, so we have a question for you
1: from one of your biggest fans. What are you gonna do to teach me more about NASA? Oh, tough question. Franklin?
4: Uh, No, just just keep turning out great um, programming, great content uh, like we do at Langley and with our partners across the other uh, NASA centers throughout the United States and our European partners and and partners in industry. Uh, We've been um, uh, afforded the opportunity to really do some really nice programming over the years and we're gonna continue to do that. So all of our viewers out there, just stay tuned.
1: You're right, we'll have to do another 200 episodes to make sure that we still deliver content.
3: Yeah, and then on, on a serious note, I mean, it's always listening and asking good questions. Now, I don't always do that but when you get close to this cool technology, just talking about it uh, seems to be the best way uh, to get uh, our guests to actually share all they can about the really cool things that NASA's doing, and, and that's always just a blast.
1: I always tell people, anytime I go out and speak to students, to the general public uh, about NASA and all the great things we do, I always tell them I had the second best job at NASA. One, I say being an astronaut. I'd always love to go into space, be on, on, on station up back in the days of shuttle. But we had the second best job because we're one of the few teams in the agency where we get to see all the cool technology, not just at NASA Langley, where we're based out of, but all 10 NASA field centers across the country. And we travel internationally. So we get to see the big picture. You know, a lot of scientists, engineers, you know, they work on... A particular mission for five, ten years, and if it's a flagship mission, it could be more. But we get to see everything in action, which is, uh, uh, you know, not too many people at the agency get to see that.
3: Yeah, and it's a privilege actually to be able to then share that with everyone in the audience. And you guys have been great over the years and showing us support. So the best we can do is to turn around and keep giving you all that you're looking for with regard to NASA. And uh, these guys that I work with, they put up a lot. Uh, with a lot working with me obviously uh, but they do a great job and i love working with uh, all these guys uh, and it's just a real privilege to be able to bring you nasa edge love it 200 episodes strong very impressive
4: and for the 200th time you're watching nasa edge an inside and outside look at all things nasa
1: hey guys i think i speak for all of
4: heliophysics at nasa to say congratulations on such an amazing 13 plus years. I came to NASA 12 years ago and you guys have been on my journey throughout that whole time, keeping things really fun.
0: Hello, this is Dave Richwine for the Low Boom Flight Demonstration Team. And we'd like to congratulate the NASA EDGE team for 200 fantastic shows over the years and many more in the future. Y'all did an awesome job at sharing our analog exploration activities with the world while also making it fun. Thanks for being a part of our Desert Rats team, and thanks for providing over 13 years of an inside and outside look at all things NASA. Hey,
2: this is Troy Klein. I just wanted to give a special congratulations to the NASA EDGE team for your 200th episode. Here's to 200 more episodes and my favorite team, NASA EDGE.
3: Haven't seen you around NASA Ames much, so I'm hoping you can come out and do some really cool programming with us. We have tons of work to share with you, especially with technology transfer. So uh, think about that one and get back to me. You know my number. Hi, NASA EDGE. This is Heather McFarland with ULA. A huge congrats on your 200th episode. I love working with the team. Your quirkiness always makes me feel like I fit right in. Thank you for continuing to produce fantastic stories about launching to an exploring space. Here's to 200 more.
2: You guys have been there for game changing. You've been there for the Langley flight projects, now for commercial crew. Big question, what's next for NASA EDGE? Thank you for all you've done. I really wanted to
3: thank you for the great job you did on our 20th anniversary video. It was one of the best um, collections of great people quotes and uh, great things for the Launch Services Program that we've ever had put together.
0: Gentlemen, I look forward to the next 200 episodes with you, and I hope that I can be a part of those as we share NASA's message going into the future. From myself and the Launch Services Program, congratulations.